Hello and welcome to part two of uh, the making of King Kong episode. And the gang is back together. We've got Sophie. Hello, Sophie. Hello. It's so good to be back. And we've also got Jason. Hello, Jason. The king is back, baby. Yes, yes. And uh, obviously, if you're listening to this, pause it and listen to the first one if you haven't listened to that one yet because, uh, you know, that kind of sets up everything and uh, we're going to get right into it because uh, there's still like a lot to a lot to, to cover. When we, when, we, when we last left off, we were just getting to the point where they were finally going to put Kong onto film. Like this, they were going to start rolling cameras for what would eventually become King Kong. Yes, there was an entire episode about the making of King Kong that did not feature actual filming, but it was worth it, I hope. The most dangerous game was already set to be filmed. Um, Now, again, there's a bit of a kind of a discrepancy there because technically King Kong is production 601, and technically the most dangerous game is RKO production 602. But regardless of when one got, like, when a production code was given, the most dangerous game was filming before King Kong. And when the most dangerous game was filming, they had a, you know, a huge, huge jungle set that they were able to kind of mold and and redo in order to do these test footage for King Kong. They filmed the most dangerous game during the day, and during the night, they created the test footage. Robert Armstrong and Faye Ray were already cast in The Most Dangerous Game, and as such, they became two of the leads of King Kong. Bruce Cabot was brought on to play the lead role of Jack Discroll. Faye Ray decided that the character should be blonde and apparently chose her own wardrobe, which was kind of cool, which is kind of cool. That, that was, that's directly from her, uh, her uh, biography, on the other hand. So That's probably uh, why she looks so fucking fabulous in this movie, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it was, uh, it was her own decisions as to what the character would wear, and you know, that's honestly, that's it's one of the, it's one of the underrated things about film is what a character's wardrobe can say about them. And I always feel like when you're when when somebody has like a really impressive wardrobe that fits the character, uh, oftentimes it's because the actor or actress got to cho- choose their own. So it's worth it's worth noting. Uh, Bruce Cabot was not actually Bruce Cabot at first. He began his life as Jacques Dubac. Bujac. Probably mispronouncing that. My apologies. I like Jacques Dubac. I mean, come on. <laughs> Jacques Dubac. Uh, that's what we're going with. Okay? Jacques <laughs> Dubac. Good. Jacques Dubac. Who the uh, fuck b- changes their name from Jacques Dubac? Uh, well, if you want to get if you want to get hired in the 1930s, you're changing your name in America. Uh, unfortunately. Ridiculous. Um, the way Kong was his very first starring role, and the way that he got hired is he once met David O. Selznick at a party. I believe he was like, he was either like a bartender or he's like a bodyguard or like a doorman. He was something at this party. Maybe he was just an attendant. Either way, he did not have a job in the film business. He met David O. Selznick, and then bam. Do you think that's when he changed his name? Like maybe he met Selznick, and Selznick was like, you know what I hate? The fucking French. And he's like, oh. <laughs> I guess my name's Bruce Cabot. <laughs> yeah, he just made it up. Like he was eating like... Cabot cheese, and he's like, "My name is Bruce Cabot." I like the idea that he was eating cabbage, and he was like, "That's too obvious." Take a different end of the Cabot. word. Cabot. Oh, Bruce. God. No one will think that's that's anything. So but close a to being Bruce American. Cabbage, just like mm-hmm. inches away. Inches, inches away. Um, so when they started to do the test footage. 
it started to interfere with the the filming of the most dangerous game. The most dangerous game was filming very regularly, and these this the footage that they were doing for Kong started to eat into the running time for the most dangerous game. Uh, and that just meant that uh, Onus P. Stodzak and Merritt C. Cooper were just going to start yelling at each other. They just, like, went at each other because this was all Cooper at this point. Mm-hmm. Stodzak was still directing the most dangerous game, uh, and the, the two men would apparently just have furious yelling badges. Yeah, it just reinforces the, the fact that, you know, so much of Kong is overstressed masculinity <laughs> and fucking anger um and um i think it seeps in you know and then and then obviously a favorite picking out her own costume and stuff like that and a woman writing and um the two confluences i think make for um are part of the the spirit of king kong you know right and and the and the, the fact that like shotzak and cooper would kind of butt heads a little bit is actually probably what makes kong so good Absolutely. because because as we'll as we'll kind of get into it they they would took take on different elements of the production and you can kind of see where um their strengths lie uh eventually they kind of solved all these issues they stopped yelling at each other and got the footage done and uh shirt sack was just able to continue on the the most dangerous game uh cooper was heavily involved in the animation test footage as well and they filmed this on like a huge miniature stage. So they had like completely mm-hmm. made this miniature stage. And we'll kind of get into who was making the miniature stages and what was involved in this creation. But they were pretty impressive. Uh, you know, this is where one of those things uh, in Kong lore kind of, you know, goes back and forth, which was just how how much of Kong is Marion C. Cooper in in the animation process. Um, you know, there, there's some reports that he would go down and he would act out all the scenarios and everything like that. And then there's other other stories where they would they would be working hard at a scene and then they would hear him coming and they would just kind of go out and be like, oh yes, Cooper, how about we, how about we do what you want us to do and just kind of play case at him while they did their own work kind of thing. So yep. he was definitely... Cooper, he did everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, he, he Cooper said like he literally would act it out on stage like he would he would go mm-hmm. and he would like act it out and be like mimic the motions that i am doing and like basically you would ask them to do rudimentary motion capture <laughs> right right this, again this goes back to the idea from the first one that king, the making of king kong is just a bunch of white dudes screaming about how they made king kong you know in their kong um individually right they really love to take credit for it and I, you know with with Marion C. Cooper, I don't know what to fucking think, right? Because if I listen to his life story from the first one, I would say he makes everything up and he, he must be because none of this shit is real. But after knowing that all that stuff he said about the war was real, who knows? Maybe he was up there, you know, throwing bananas and jumping around, you know? No idea what to think. You really, you really don't know what to think. And, but that, again, that's one of the fun things about covering the story is that you can tell both versions and, you know, it's up to you. You can, it's your choose your own venture. That's kind of, the kind of, the more you get into King Kong, the more you find out that it's just a choose your right. own adventure story, really. And if you're that kind of fucking nerd, this is the story for you, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, once uh, the, they had done all the animation and they had done all of the on-camera footage, they edited together and they actually put in a sequence from creation. And that was, I'm pretty sure that was the, the footage of, you can, you can see it on, on, uh, online where they, there's this uh, scene of a man shooting at a 
baby Triceratop, and the Triceratops just gores the shit out of him. Like, uh, and and that was uh, that was a scene from creation, and that was kind of spliced into this uh, this footage that he was going to pr- present. Essentially, they also wrapped in a bunch of concept art by Willis O'Brien, Krabby, and Mario Larganaga, and they got the project greenlit. Uh, the first title was called The Beast. And uh, along with that, they also bought the rights to the Lost World, both in film and in novel, so they could ensure that the 1925 film got buried. This was actually relatively easy to do. Um, you know, people people go, "Oh man, King Kong! They totally screwed the screwed the pooch. They they made it so that the Lost World was un, unfindable for years." But the 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 reality of the story is that. All of the copies of the original Lost World were ordered to be destroyed and removed from circulation in 1929 because they were thinking about doing a sound, like some somebody thought that they might do a sound remake of the Lost World, and uh, and as such, they decided to destroy all of the original. Like it's crazy. There's like a literal order to destroy all of these prints. And that's why uh, in the Lost World, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, the the reason why you have the the versions of the Lost World you do today is actually due to a bunch of overseas footage. I believe there like the majority yeah. of the print from the 1925 Lost World that exists today is from uh, Czechoslovakia, and it was just one of those things where that was one of the last stops on the road, and it was just put into a private collector's like a uh, uh, bunker basically, and that yeah. it didn't get destroyed. They said uh, it's in Czechoslovakia. Don't bother burning it. No one will ever fucking find it, right? And yeah, exactly. And they didn't for years. Wow. It took like I think it was like 1990. Somebody like found that print and and started the reconstruction. Yeah, yeah and, and ironically, right? Um, the reason we care about that movie to a large extent is because of King Kong, right? So yeah, um, it sort of saves that movie um, as opposed to destroys it as the story goes. You know, um, not yeah. saves it, saves it, but you know, makes it still relevant in the cultural um you know in the mainstay of the cultural relevance um because of its you know because of its connection to kong yeah i i do wonder if the um you know the effort to preserve the film would have been as uh, as read as as prominent if they hadn't done that you know what i mean um one of the things that is, is another fascinating wrinkle to the tale, we we talked about Edgar Wallace, and uh, I didn't realize this, but apparently David O. Selznick was the one who said, Cooper, you're working with Edgar Wallace, and Edgar Wallace is going to write the book, and then you, when you do the script, going to say, based upon a book by Edgar Wallace. So it's basically that they want to do a genius marketing move, which is try to Make it so that this is based on a book, but it's not really based on a book. They just made the book. They wanted to make the book and release the book prior to the movie so that they could say the movie was based off of that, basically. Right. This this is something that happens in Hollywood, though, right? I mean, um, there's definitely later examples of this happening where you sort of, oh, it's better to say it's based on a book. So we'll write a book um, and then make a movie. What what was that? Um, There was a Hannibal movie that that happened with, right? Hannibal Rising? Yeah, so essentially they decide let's make a Hannibal movie and then, you know, we're going to write a book to promote the movie. You know what I mean? Right, So it's yeah. sort of what happens here, right? Um, so, yeah, so Marion C. Cooper, apparently they, they, there was like some, uh, you know, some discussion as to whether or not he would have been happy with this uh, inclusion just because 
so much of Kong was of his own creation. and Of course, everything that gets in the way of his fucking ego. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, who knows? But um, for whatever reason, uh, you know, Wallace eventually did come on. And uh, what happened is Wallace only wrote this this first draft of the screenplay. Because what would happen is he wrote the first draft of the screenplay in either four or five days. There were uh, there were differing reports as to how long it was. Uh, it was called uh, The Beast. And he had suggested the title of King Ape prior to his death of pneumonia in February of 1932. What's fascinating is both him and Cooper came down with pneumonia in the exact same time period. One of them went to the hospital, Cooper. One of them did not, Wallace, and Wallace died from it. He had not completed any work on the novelization prior to his death. However, his input on King Kong should not be overlooked. The first half of his script is very different. However, the second half features many of the elements that would make King Kong an undeniable icon. So I'd be interested to talk about this first draft a little bit. Um, you know, mm. it was it was very different. It was very fascinating. Um, you know, because th- there is this idea that like Denim was like a circus man. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did he do in the circus? Was he like a ringleader or did he do acrobatics or? Yeah, he was like the ringleader. And there's this like this um this first draft um has him like this movie opens up with him and the captain marveling at an ape who is like tearing the petals off a flower like a human being and marveling how much like people they are. Um, which I think adds an interesting concept to the story that isn't actually in the final Kong. So a lot of that test footage they did in order to impress and get the film greenlit, and a lot of the stuff that happens on the island, um, especially in the deep forest, they didn't actually have a script for with any dialogue, and they only had kind of a basic outline. That's kind of why you see that Denim is like dressed more in like a safari outfit and, and is more kind of, you know old school and does not look like a film director at all and and part of that is because uh, of this footage that was filmed with a draft that was way earlier than what we eventually got and uh, and, and i'm sure part of that as well is how um cooper and shoes see themselves as you know wilderness men right like they they i'm sure it plays a role in that right no of course of course um so the next person who got involved was James A. Creelman, and he took over where Wallace left off, and he was already at work on The Most Dangerous Game. So this is another person that Cooper kind of poaches from that film. When they were going through the motions of writing this version of the script, he eventually had to leave because they needed him back on The Most Dangerous Game. So the mo the, the like if you watch the most dangerous game, all you have to know is that like a whole bunch of those people are doing double duty on Kong at the same time, crazy. which is just it's crazy. It's, That's mind blowing. The script was then renamed from the Beast to the Eighth Wonder. What a fucking awesome name! That's a fucking great name. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That that is an awesome name. Uh, then you had Horace McCoy who was brought on for the next few drafts. Um, and that is when he added the presence of the island natives and the large wall surrounding the island. McCoy is like a famous novelist. 
like Horace McCoy wrote the novel They Shoot Horses, don't they? Right. Yeah. Which is like a which is like a hugely influential book. I'll be honest, I don't know much about that book, but I've definitely heard that title, right? Like it's a very famous uh, tale. Yeah, and um, you know, they brought him on to um, you know, add the natives to the story. So thank you Horace McCoy for that. Yeah, well, the, the, it's funny because, yes, that's bad, but also the wall is essential, right? Like, I think there's, like, yeah. two things that are, like, it's like, a, oh, this is bad and this is bad. We'll get into it, but when Creelman came back, Creelman had the most racist shit to add. Creelman was the worst of them um, when we get into that. Um, so Leon Gordon was another writer who was involved at some point in this period. He was involved in one of these drafts. Uh, like I said, a whole bunch of this script goes through a whole bunch of hands while things are being filmed and being prepared to be filmed. Uh, Creelman eventually rejoined the script after the most dangerous game was finished, and he was really unhappy with all the changes. He left uh, because he was basically like, you know what, Cooper, you're trying to cram too much into this story, and you just cannot, you cannot do this in any any frame of mind and make a good film. It's actually probably pretty good that Creelman uh, got out because um, Creelman is where some of the, I'm not going to say misconceptions, but he he brings in literal references to Inagi. Like at mm-hmm. one point, the script literally mentions Inagi, and apparently he had a, a whole bunch of anti-Semitic humor in his version. Oh, great. Oh, dear. Yeah. <gasps> It just just backing up a little bit to like maybe what and, and I'm only inferring based on I've seen the movie They Shoot Horses, don't they? And that's probably not what you think it is. It's not a um, Western. It's like a Depression era, like guy trying to make it and survive type of story. Um, so it makes you sort of wonder like the elements that are like in the city at the beginning and her being like homeless basically and trying to get food. And you wonder if those elements maybe. Um, were incorporated as part from Horace McCoy. Um, Possibly, it uh, seems uh, like from from what I saw, uh, that was directly Ruth Rose. So that oh, okay, that cool. part, yeah. Sweet. So that part, like yeah. the part that she definitely added was like the all the di- like all the dialogue. As we'll get into that, but she also sure. added that front front part of the story um, because it actually r- roped in the the story of casting Anne is a reference to a friend of theirs who uh, right. got. <laughs> Who insanely got a, a circus performer by doing something very similar? And we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to that. Got being uh, the operative word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so they nearly finished the script to, to Cooper's liking, but eventually he uh, Cooper's asked Ruth Rose to come in and rewrite all of the film's dialogue. She had no script writing experiences beforehand, and she completely made the script work. So, uh, you know, she tightened t- tightened up everything. She incorporated elements from the adventures with Shootsack and Cooper. And unfortunately, despite being one of the most important people in King Kong, Ruth Rose only got $150, while Creelman got $2,000. Fucking ridiculous. This is the part where if we were on one of my other favorite podcasts, it would go, the patriarchy, with like a yeah, yeah. Wah, ah, 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 in the background. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I mean, that's, you know. Ugh. I mean, that just, yeah, just like it goes, it goes uh, pretty clear and, and pretty clear cut and just goes like, bam. Like, uh, this is how it was. This is why things like equal pay need to be, need to be implemented. And, you know. It's, and it's I think what, that's like $13,000 in today's money is $2,000 then, right? Uh, Something like that. So 
that's insane for doing nothing and getting kicked off and adding a bunch of fucking anti-Semitic shit and then, you know. And then peacing out, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. He's like, well, I did my job. <laughs> I made everyone uncomfortable and I got fired because I said your script is bullshit, so baby. <laughs> so what happened when, another thing that Ruth Rose did, she added the prologue, which is explained where Denim found Anne and completely removed the explanation for how they brought Kong from the island to the city. So they finally, finally got the script to where Cooper was happy with it. And Cooper had to add one last touch to it, which was a, a fake Arabic proverb, which is the and beauty killed the beasts, uh, the, the famous the famous line uh, that is not a real Arabic proverb. Mm-hmm. Cooper just made it up. Uh, and then he also changed the film's title to just Kong at that point. I do also want to add that um, Ruth Rose is just a badass woman in general. I mean, she wrote a bunch of shit. She's also had a son during this time period who was born with cerebral palsy. Like, she's doing this um, while de- in 1933, right? So I think he was born in, like, the late 20s. So um, he's very young at this age, right? So she's doing this and writing this while dealing— And you know, because she's a woman, she was doing all—handling all that on her own. You know what I mean? So— um, I just want to, you know, again, she's and got paid one hundred and fifty dollars for it. So, what yeah. a fucking woman! Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! It's it's crazy! It's crazy! Um, this is th- this is the point where Cooper actually brought on Shodzak to become the co-director, and because they were so different in, in the ways that w- they would film real stuff, right? Like it was so funny that they worked really well in a documentary setting, but once they got on to, you know actually trying to film this movie um they found out that like oh in the studio systems like we don't work well together right because Shodzak, he he basically did everything fast quick and and like just did one or two did a few takes and he was very kind of lax where cooper was insanely like particular and be like no 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 do this again do this again do this again Mm-hmm. He was a real and, Stanley Kubrick, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, very, he's very Stanley Kubrick, James Cameron esque, uh, <laughs> where they just become completely obsessed with mastering this effects sequences. Um, and as such, Cooper was like, uh, "Fine, I will go handle the effects work. You handle all of the live action sequences." And that's pretty much what they ended up doing. The film was uh, created using sound stages and backlots with minimal on location shooting. They did utilize the San Pedro Harbor, the Shrine Auditorium, and sent a second unit to New York in order to get some of the outdoor sequences. This is where we're going to try to get into some of the, the optical and some of the more effects-heavy information that we were found. Uh, Willis O'Brien was the chief technician on the film with Delgado Sculpting. O'Brien is the man. Oh, so yes. let's just stop and say that. O'Brien was... The man. A hundred percent. But also, you know, I, it says with uh, Marcel Delgado sculpting, uh, mm-hmm. it would also, it's also worth mentioning that it was also Victor Delgado was at least involved in the sculpting somewhat. Yeah. Uh, as we discussed, uh, Victor Delgado is like a weird uh, footnote in that no one has talked to them. No one talks about him, but he's in so many photos. You know, he did a big contribution. Uh, Willis O'Brien was not the sole animator 
on Kong, uh, contrary to popular belief. Uh, E.B. Gibson and Fred Reef were assistant animators. The miniature sets were built by W.G. White and Orville Goldner. Goldner would uh, would be the one who go, went on to write the, the 1976 book, The Making of King Kong. Uh, and that's the one that is the most easily accessible making of Kong book as it does get kind of reprinted and re-evaluated years and years down the line. Still has, it has, since it was made in the 70s and it got mm-hmm. reissued a bunch of times, but no one has ever really um, updated some of the language used. Um, there's some stuff that uh, are definitely uh, what one, one would call racist um, in, sure. in that Goldner book. Um, and he's, it's also like a very like mean spirited books. Like it's not very nice to, um, you know, just any other film, you know what I mean? Like any, any other film that came after Kong, it's very much like, fuck this film. It sucks. Fuck you for liking it. It's very, it's a very angry film. Um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's worth the read if you are interested because it's so easily accessible, interested. But yeah, I mean, I think those are great caveats, right? I also had the caveat that with anything with King Kong, like you have to read multiple books to be sure that what's in it is actually accurate because um, there's shit in there that's definitely disputed by other people, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, agree. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a crazy, dark, um, angry rabbit hole to go down um, researching king kong yeah yeah, definitely definitely crabby laranaga and ernest Smythe worked on the matte paintings that were seen in much of the film uh eddie linden the director of photography with kenneth peach senior acting as his backup they had to do the super difficult job of ensuring light continuity between the live action scenes and the miniature sequences this is super notable and really important for the success of kong because light continuity will instantly be noticeable on film especially in black and white when everything was um you know the intensity was based upon how bright the lights were you know how how clear everything looked and one of the things that was most difficult about this element of the film, they they found that they could not, you know, take a break from animated a sequence. If they wanted to animate a sequence, they would have to animate it the entirely on the same day. Because if they didn't, lights of this time would not go... Like, if you turned a light off and then you turned it back on, you were not guaranteed the same amount of uh, brightness. Like, some maybe, you know, a slight slight dimming of a bulb or something was, you know, maybe something was shorting in it. Maybe the, you know, the electricity was not doing so great today. Maybe something else was kind of, like, taking away the intensity. But, like, if you didn't do it all at once you would be fucked and have to do it all over again because, you know, how lights were at the time, which is got just crazy, right? Like, it's crazy. Well, it's also a crazy amount of attention to detail, right? I mean, we ha- we have watched movies for this very podcast that pay no attention, that they were made 30 years later, 40 years later. And the Crater Lake Monster has a scene where somebody is looking up at the sky at the sun and saying, isn't it a beautiful night? And there's no fucking filters on the camera. <laughs> there's no, you know. This sounds I mean, like a real um. What's that shark movie we did, Jason? Oh yeah, I, are you talking about the very important sequel to um, Jaws? <laughs> Cruel Jaws. Yeah, Cruel, Cruel Jaws, Jaws, where they were like the the day for night was just like yeah, just pretend. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. Just right? imagine it was dark outside. So imagine in 1933 having that attention to detail when some filmmakers today don't even fucking bother putting, they could just slap a filter on it to make right. it look darker. You know? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Optical and process shots were made a lot easier due to the fact that they had just invented the optical printer. Crazy. The, oh my god. The optical printer is a little bit hard to kind of explain, but basically it made it so that you could line up uh, matte shots and like kind of like combine shots together a lot easier than you would beforehand and a lot more kind of uh, intensity and with a lot more uh, finesse um, where before you'd have to basically think you'd you'd sometimes like before the optical printer existed you had to be like oh I think we got that shot oh I think everything worked I guess we have to wait until everything is comes back and gets processed to us to find out and that would be like a day right like you could you could do a shot, fuck up a shot, think you got it, put it to print, and then you go watch it the next day. You're like, oh, crap, we got to do it all over again. Optical printer managed to help that process get done a lot quicker. Yeah, basically what you have is like a um, – just describe what it looks like um, and so you get an idea. It's basically like a, bunch, a couple projectors on a rail. Right with a camera connected to it, so you're projecting and filming at the same time. Like that's sort of the idea, right? So just to just to just to give you an understanding of how different that is than not projecting at the same time in a single sequence of movement. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, again, one of the things that's interesting about learning about the creation of King Kong is you actually have to learn about the creation of out of now outdated filming techniques, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. We still use the optical printer is still used, but you know, obviously a much more advanced version of it. Um, it was, it was actually uh, most of these shots were done by Vernon Walker with Linwood G Dunn and William Ulm creating the majority of the effects in those particular shots. In order to complete King Kong, Walker and crew had to use every single trick in the book. Stationary mats, double exposure, soft edge mats, traveling mats. And no, we're not talking about the... Uh, the Uncle traveling mat? Yeah. <laughs> we're not talking about the character from <laughs> Fraggle Rock. Although maybe, is that maybe a weird joke about traveling mats? Like, I don't it, know how I they... I mean, that definitely sounds like something Jim Henson would do. Is... Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of hilarious. Uh, rotoscoping, rear projection. And O'Brien used a technique I had never heard of before doing this miniature projection we'll get into exactly what that is later but this is something that i had never heard of uh and i've never seen another film use miniature projection to my uh my knowledge jason have you did you ever hear a miniature projection before not until i started um researching this um initially so and I, and I maybe there's other films um that use this technology that i'm not aware of i mean that's definitely possible um, but you know, this is the first I've ever heard of it in all my years reading about filmmaking and different techniques or special effects. Right, right. Uh, so basically what miniature projection was is they would have to project a single frame at a time on a very small screen that was inside of the area they were animating. So they would have the puppetry and they would have all of that going with their miniature sets. And then they would have a small screen and for this they had to use a uh, surgical rubber sheeting to do miniature projection you had to use a much smaller screen than any normal type of rear projection 
And it actually in the Criterion commentary, they claim they used condoms for the miniature screens. I mean, I guess those are surgical rubber sheetings. I'm not really sure. He, they had to keep buying new versions of these screens because the, the, the heat that you make when you're projecting or you're lighting a scene would just completely like burn through it. Um, and they had to come up with the invent, they had pretty much invent the process of shutter synchronization for these sequences. In RKO Production 601, uh, documentary that's on the Blu-rays. Uh, this is probably the best place to go if you really want to kind of understand what we're talking about, as they completely recreate a scene using the elements that they would have had to use in the 1930s. And pretty much Peter Jackson and his entire team tried to recreate everything that they did for for the original King Kong. And it's it's really intense, really crazy. They do things like they 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 literally got an MRI and like an X an X-rays of of old of old props just to, so they understand how they were all put together and everything. It's it's crazy. But they they show how they animated this and it's basically like Okay, so here's one frame. Move, move my character how I want them. Like, so move like maybe his finger a little bit, or move his like paw a little bit. Okay, next frame, boom. Next, you have the next frame of film, and then you do the next frame of animation, and you do that for that entire sequence. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is sort of the the crux of why every modern filmmaker who loves special effects is obsessed with King Kong right and wants to make it it's because this is like the industrial revolution for special effects um they invented so much shit it, it's everything changed everything the world's a different place post the production of king kong from a special effects standpoint and a filmmaking standpoint yeah you know? and and like all these things got invented either like right before king kong or for king kong in, in some of these cases because like one of the reasons why all of their rear screen projections actually look good is because they had just had a new version of the rear screen invented. And it was invented by Sidney Saunders, who pretty much the way that he made it allowed for a much clearer image on a much larger scale. And this, again, this is life-changing, right? I don't know how, I don't know, like... I, I guess like Cooper was just, uh, you know, kind of naive and thinking that they could do all of this before knowing about all of these very specific inventions. Because when you think about it, like the rear screen, that was used for so many sequences, right? And it all would, if they had used traditional rear screen projection that was at, uh, of the time, it would have looked awful. So it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's amazing that all of these very specific inventions came about just in time for Kong, and as such, it made it like an uncomparable, unbeatable masterpiece in terms of special effects. Do you think this is what Creelman means when he, he says that they're just trying to do too much? Like, that's what he's thinking, is that these special effects are going to be impossible to pull off because he is, doesn't understand the technology, and he doesn't understand the technology te technological advancement that we're going through in the process of making this film you know you know i don't want to give krillman any credit for anything <laughs> so uh no fair I enough, don't think fair so. enough. another technique that really assisted the film was an improved uh, double mat process so again another um you know optical effects that just got improved 
And that was devised by Frank D. Williams. So it's like all of these things are completely crazy. It's crazy. It's craziness. Um, as mentioned, uh, when they were filming the early special effects, they were using the uh, jungle sequences from the most dangerous game. And what was crazy about the, this jungle is they they built it in these modular sections that were really easy to be rearranged. So they could just rearrange the jungle and with the pieces they had to make new pieces of jungle. That is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's brilliant. And then they, as soon as they finished... The most dangerous game? They just fucking they destroyed all the sets. Just, just burn it to the ground. <laughs> what is with everything in fire, you know? I I don't know if they burned it to the ground, although I, I wouldn't be surprised if I they wouldn't did. Put because, it past them. because, like, there are stories from, like, 80s movies where they needed to have uh, destruction, so they just hung out by, like, old flaming um pits that would just never stop to be flaming of burning props from other movies like it's just insane but um they probably were still doing that at this time but yeah like it it was it was really clever how they did it and it was carol clark who was in charge uh of this particular set and getting it into motion while the art director al herman designed the rest of the sets uh that were not done in this sequence the Great Wall was actually left over from Cecil B. DeMille's King of Kings. There you go. This is, uh, you know, if you listen to the last episode, this is uh, the reference that um, mm-hmm. Jason was making. To, king uh, of Kings. The King of Kings. And was redecorated by a man by the name of Thomas Little, who was the set decorator. Uh, George Gabe was the prop master on the film. What's interesting about, um, you know, there are props of King Kong that still uh, still exist, uh, which is kind the, of impressive. Yeah, I mean, the rest got burned, right? <laughs> That's the part that, like, really, like, when I was reading this, and, like, and then they burned them all. I'm like, what the fuck? You know? That's what I'm saying. They burn everything. It's yeah. The, well, yeah, because, yeah, like, this wall, this great wall, is it got literally burnt. <laughs> For Gone with the Wind. They yeah. literally set it on fire for that, oh, cry baby, oh, I'm so sad to sell for us. Mew, mew, mew. Yes. Gone with the Wind. Anyways. Um, Wait, have either of you, this is such a weird tangent, have either of you gotten to watch Minari yet? No. I haven't. No, no I haven't. Uh, so, my fiance and I just watched it and it takes place in the Arkansas Ozarks. Uh, and so they burn their garbage. And my fiance who grew up in the Missouri Ozarks was like, that's some real Ozarks shit. And I just feel like that's the production of this film was just like <laughs> burn pile, put it in the burn pile. We'll burn it with the other stuff. We're going to burn. <laughs> and now I'm going to go watch Minari directly after this. I mean, you should watch Minari. If yeah, of course. Phenomenal. Yeah. Walter Plunkett was in charge of the costuming, and Harry Redmoon Jr. handled all of the mechanical effects. I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you, but it's really important to understand that the depth of Kong is a lot more than just three men. Of yes. course, there's like three men that are really at the heart of it, as far as like creation and everything like the that. The loudest, drunkest, angriest portion of King Kong. You know what I mean? Right. That's... But there's there are so many different people, and the reason why this film works and exists as it is is a team effort. Film is a collaborative medium, and that's why I don't believe that Arthur 
exist if we're going to get into our tour theory. I just don't believe it exists because it's not a hot take because film is collaborative. He didn't, no one, Orson Welles was not sewing together the costumes on Citizen Kane, okay? I love me Orson Welles, and I don't, not, not nothing bad about Citizen Kane, but I'm just saying, Nocturas don't exist. This film mm-hmm. is collaborative medium. Anyways, um, <laughs> now that filming proper was set to begin, the rest of the crew began to form. Captain Engelhorn was played by Frank Riker. Riker was an accomplished actor who had a career in Broadway, silent pictures, and now the talkies, which again, that's a crazy like that. You know, that's you don't. Tough. Yeah, yeah. You don't really understand. Um, you know, watch, watch Sunset Boulevard to really understand that that development from the talkies, from the silent pictures to the talkies, or watch Singing in the Rain, um, because both of those mm. really kind of highlight just how big of a change. Um, you know, sound was to movies in a lot of ways more than just the introduction to sound. Like as we talked about with su- shutter speed and, and etc. There was a lot more to it than just there was no sound and now there's sound. Um, and you know, Broadway too was just like what Broadway? Wow, that's like a you know most people can't do all of it. He maybe he would have gotten EGOT back in the day. You know, <laughs> maybe maybe. Um, so similar to what happened. With uh, Dracula in 1931, uh, Riker would direct the German versions of popular films for export. So back in the day, um, you know, before they would go out, go about like completely dubbing uh, the language tracks of a film, they would actually film an alternate version of the movie for distribution in other countries. So uh, in Dracula 1931, there's a very famous version of that Dracula, which is called Spanish Dracula, which is just the the Spanish version of Dracula made with entirely different actors, but using all the same sets from that original 1931 Dracula. A lot of these versions, like I'm not, I don't think a lot of these these exported versions exist nowadays which is kind of unfortunate because it would be very fascinating to see what it was like um now there was there wasn't a version of this phenomenon for kongs but it is just uh, notable that this is something that uh, Riker did because he was also like a, a talented uh, you know filmmaker in his own regard uh he also was uh, was really nice to Bruce Cabot because Cabot was super inexperienced like as as we were talking about like this is one of his first film roles and he was never been a lead before so um Victor Wong was Charlie the cook. Uh, we kind of broke this, uh, <laughs> broke down uh, his character in in our original <sighs> episode on King Kong 33, um, along with the vital work of Noble Johnson, who played the chieftain. Uh, unfortunately, Noble Johnson was artificially darkened for his portrayal as the chieftain, which is, uh, yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah, pretty bad, pretty bad. I mean, which is worse, that or just Charlie the Cook in general? Uh, I mean, they're both really bad, yo. Mm, they're bad. both real bad. Real, real bad. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, Steve Clementi was uh, one of the other actors who played one of the natives. Uh, he played the Witch King in the movie. And he is the one who actually told the tale about uh to cooper about finding the assistant which is how the um you know how was how finding, was brought quote during, unquote aboard the venture 
Yes, I know. That's maybe that's a bit Finding. of a quote unquote, but uh, <laughs> that's that story is actually from Steve Cl- Clemente, which is just kind yeah, of fascinating. yeah. That's a you know a, a casting couch tale. You know what I mean? I, I'm not you know I'm not comfortable with that whole scenario. How it plays out in the movie, or probably how it played out in real life. You know? Right. No, it's not a. It's not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not for it. I'm obviously not going like, hey, this is how you get, get people in your movies. <laughs> Go, offer them food and then tell them, you know, <laughs> shoot this dinosaur. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> no, obviously it's that terrible, but, you know, it's based on the true story. Um, so there's that final moments in King Kong uh, where the final plane shoots the poor defenseless Kong. And that was actually flown by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest P. Schoetzak. They were not flying an actual plane, only a facsimile of one created on a soundstage. Funny, basically he was flying a facsimile of a plane in fucking World War I, too. <laughs> Pretty much. You know? <laughs> right in his wheelhouse. He's like, he's know? probably like flying and he's like, wait a minute, it hasn't caused fire yet. This isn't a real plane. <laughs> <laughs> I've been horribly injured. What is this shit? Yeah. Um, the true star of the film, King Kong, took multiple tries by Delgado to master. Apparently, eventually... Cooper called up a zoo to get the exact measurements for a gorilla and gave that to the effects team, stating that was what he wanted. Again, you know, you, you, it, that's an interesting tale. If it was done, um, it's it's clear that the effects team didn't really listen because Cog <laughs> is, not, is, is not anything towards the actual proportions of a, a true gorilla, which is just fascinating. A story that's full of probable bullshit and potential bullshit, this seems like the most bullshit to me. Like, uh, call up the zoo and get a tape measure and tell me how big a gorilla is. What? Well, what's fascinating, though, about that is the fact that this is clearly one of the storytelling elements um, that Peter Jackson latched onto because right. his Kong is is very much just a giant gorilla, um, and and I would I would wonder if his version of Kong came from this version of the story. The armature was made of dural aluminum. It was created using layers of cotton sheeting to build up the body and foam rubber to define the muscles. Afterwards, it was wrapped in a sheet latex to create the skin of Kong. The model actually featured bendable wires, which is what you could you could control Kong's lips, eyebrows, and nose with. Um, the eyeballs were made of glass, and the outer skin was covered by liquid latex. They used rabbit fur for Kong, which Delgado was actually against because he felt like that would be noticeable on film. It was indeed pretty noticeable, but it wasn't actually seen as a detriment. Many people claimed that seeing the fur on Kong move actually made him appear more lifelike. I totally agree with him on that. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's just a, it's like a fascinating thing because it's technically a filmmaking mistake, but it actually ends up making, uh, making it work better. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that's fascinating about, uh, you know, talking about how moldable and how well built this version of the frame of Kong's frame was, um, it, it was so well done that they actually stole the hands from, from this puppet and used it for a film in 1960. It, Jack the Giant Slayer, one of the puppets, actually features Kong's hands. 
because they stole it from the puppet so that they could use the hands because it was so poorly. Like the person who had molded the armature the second time, it just wasn't up to snuff. And then apparently, um, uh, you know, this is Jim, Jim from Jim Danforth's book. They never removed and replaced the 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 Kong's hands. Because he was like, he went to his boss and was like, "Hey, we need to put those hands back for Kong. Like, that's an important thing." And the, his boss was like, "No, we didn't. We didn't even use his hands." And he's like, "No, no, no. I saw. We, I foresaw us putting the hands on. No, no, we didn't use the hands." So apparently, <laughs> one of the puppets from Jack the Giant Slayer still has King Kong's hands, which is just fascinating. To Unless me. someone burned it immediately after filming, in which case they're gone. <laughs> No, once you get to once you get to the sixties, so, somebody held on to that one for sure. I don't know. Jack who. the Giant Slayer, by the way, fucking great movie. Oh yeah, it? I love that movie. I love that movie. It's just it's just one of those weird things about how many uh, Kong puppets kind of end up in the end of that movie. The skin would dry out very quickly, and as such, it had to be constantly replaced. Uh, they had to make a second Kong um, so they would not have uh, lengthy delays. There wasn't a simple mold, right? There was no molds for Kong. So every time they had to make a new Kong, they had to do it from scratch. That is why Kong does not look consistent throughout the movie. There are multiple faces that are different, and just, uh, you know, general uh, appearance of Kong uh, is, is quite different as, uh, as the, the film goes on. Um, just because uh, they didn't have molds that you could just pour the latex in and have your skin again. He had to make everything by hand. Marcel Galgado is super important to the look of Kong, and I just I think that's just kind of forgotten too often. I think this is where like black and white really helps them out, though, as well. Like, um, if it's in color, it's probably more noticeable that they're different. Yeah, I mean, you can still very much, you can very much notice it on film. Sure, sure, but I still think it bothers you as much. You know, no, like, yeah, it, ne- it never takes it away. It's like you could almost just say it's like his different expressions, almost like it just it actually kind of ends up giving Kong a little bit more life. The size of Kong varies throughout production. Um, when they decided to make Kong go from 18 feet to 24 feet tall, they had to build a larger model of Kong. That size difference was because they they built Kong uh, to be 18 feet tall, and then when they eventually moved to New York, um, Cooper was like, oh, Kong looks too small. We have to up Kong's size. So did Cooper um, call um, up the zoo and say, measure me a 24-foot gorilla so I can make sure the proportions are correct? <laughs> no, no. He just said, no, no, one will, no, one will, no one will notice. Just make Kong bigger. So they had, to, they had to build an entirely new model of Kong. So there's a third model of Kong, and that third model is when he's roaming around New York. Because you got to keep in mind, they built all of the sets to a certain size ratio. To just change his size meant you could not just change the back, like the entire set, because that would take way, way, way longer than to just make a whole new puppet. So it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, And they actually made a fourth model of Kong for when he falls off the Empire State Building. So there were four models in total. People 
really will be like, Kong changes size during the movie. And I like never notice it. Like I never, <laughs> it's never like, it's never like a thing where I'm like, hmm, how tall is the wall on the island? Is it applicable to the ways of the Empire State Building? I do not think that. I hate it. I hate when people like right. go on about it because you never notice it unless you're told about it. In These fucking opinion. nerds are pausing their Blu-ray to get their tape measure out to measure Kong in different fucking scenes. <laughs> Just watch the movie, all right? And enjoy it. There's huge irony in <laughs> No, no, but we're appreciating. We're appreciating. <laughs> you know? E.B. Gibson was in charge of creating the full-size prop head because they made a full-size prop head. The frame was made of wood, Utilizing a bunch of metal hinges and levers, it actually had an air compressor that allowed it to open and close its mouth. The eyes were 12 inches long, and the fangs were 10 inches long. The full-size Kong model was also sculpted by Marcel Delgado, with the face and chest made of rubber with bare skin draping the rest of the body. 85 motors controlled this version of... Kong, and 30 bear skins were used. 30 bears died to make you this fucking Kong. <laughs> Insane. You know? Insane. They literally had to transport it with like a flat car. <laughs> like they had to like wheel it to, to set because it's just, it's giant. Uh, it's so cool. giant. And I'm sure it got burned directly after what making What do you think movie? it smelled like? <laughs> 30 bears, Sophie, is what it smelled like. 30 <laughs> dead bears. Honestly, I, I 100% believe you because I, they did not – I don't believe they reused this large Kong for Son of Kong. Like I don't think this this version of, of, of Kong was reused. And uh, I've never seen someone take any photos with it. That is insane. Like this fucking thing is incredible. It took them – uncountable hours to make. They're just like, eh, throw it in the fucking pit with the fire right after. They also built two giant right arms, one giant leg, and they made these using steel, and they also had bear skin, rubber and bear skin. They were actually mounted using cranes and levers, depending on what needed to be done in the sequence. One of the arms was, like, articulate and could, like, bend its fingers and stuff like that. One of the arms was not articulate. Uh, much like in The Lost World, the work of Charles R. Knight was very influential upon the creation of the dinosaurs, as his murals in the American Museum of Natural History were the basis for the dinosaur design. The museum's paleontologist, Dr. Barnum Brown, was also consulted. It's so funny because you... There are, um, you know, you can really tell that Charles R. Knight is like kind of that that secret sauce to all of these early dinosaur movies when you kind of look at his artwork. Because, like, again, these are not how we envision dinosaurs nowadays. Um, and, you know, it was done based on, like, early paleontological evidence. Um, so it looks very different to how we, we do dinosaurs nowadays. But when you look at the paintings, you're like, damn, they, like, really recreated that in 3D. And it's really kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, the American Museum of Natural History is my favorite museum in the world in New York City. It is an incredible experience. If you're any kind of dinosaur lover... 
um, you should take the trip there if it's at all possible for you when people aren't, you know, getting infected with a plague. Um, it is, um, if you're a dinosaur lover, I mean, there's an entire floor that's just dinosaurs, matte paintings and dinosaur bones, and it is um, a life-changing experience for someone who loves dinosaurs. So definitely, um, you know, I, I could see how that work could have an impact on dinosaurs in film forever you know yeah yeah there's actually a, a charles r knight a biography uh, of charles r knight yeah that was recently released so you know one day we might actually just cover him because he is so influential i, I nice. might be kind of get that book and kind of like read about his life because you know it's influential to uh, what we love um the dinosaurs were built in the pretty much the exact same way as kong utilizing cotton foam rubber and sheet latex uh, they also had football bladders inside of them that helped to simulate breathing. Now, again, simulating breathing in stop motion is crazy impressive. <laughs> yeah, you would have to figure out the exact amount of air in each singular frame. Yeah, that makes my head hurt. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. But it's beautiful. It, like, the level of attention to detail... I'm so glad that you guys are doing these episodes to talk about this stuff and that you've done all the research you've done because this stuff is just absolutely stunning. Yeah, it just, it really, you just kind of really kind of grow to appreciate how much effort went into this. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there's ever been, I don't think since there's been this level of attention to detail in the film, quite honestly, um, to this degree, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, sometimes we don't hear about some of the stuff that happens, but it just seems like, man, there's so much behind Kong in terms of every single element thought through. And, and when you think about it, all those dinosaurs were not even made for Kong, right? <laughs> all right. those dinosaurs, right. those were all made for creation. So <laughs> they were putting all that heart and work into another wholly different movie, which is just right. crazy. Such professional dudes, right? Like this is a crazy amount of work. Um, so they were they scaled up the dinosaurs to emphasize the spectacle. Again, you know, it was worth it. I, again, the only reason you'd be like, mm, I do not think a T Rex is that tall is uh, is if you're uh, me, I guess, when I was a teenager and being a little bitch. Andrew, I feel like you're doing a direct impression of the way my voice sounds when you do that, and uh, I'd like you <laughs> Wait. to stop. Um. Okay, I'm not I am absolutely giving you shit. <laughs> In case that wasn't incredibly clear. There were two Stegosaurus models with, they with their dorsal plates being made of wood. Three Triceratops, one adult Triceratops, two of them were babies. Three different Prontosaurus models, one of which was actually a three-foot model. The second was just of the head and neck and the final was a mechanical model that they could actually physically roll out of the water that's um the the brontosaurus is where my nerd meter goes into overdrive and i start screaming at the tv because first of all brontosauruses don't deserve the um you know negative treatment they get in this film attacking people they are they were gentle giants and um you know leave them the fuck alone all right that's where i get upset is the yeah, but they pretty much inspired the Loch Ness monster we know today. Yeah, they created a fucking conspiracy that have ruined people's lives. 
Sophie, awful. did you did you know that? Did you know that the Brontosauruses in this movie actually inspired the Loch Ness monster? I absolutely did not, and I have to uh, I have to push back a little bit because the Loch Ness monster is real. So oh right, oh, sorry. It's the so there was the incorrect version of the Loch Ness monster with a long neck. Uh, the, the legends of Loch Ness go date way before, um, you know. Are we coming with the with the plesiosaur model? Is that what we're saying? Because that is absolutely false as well. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I don't know my dinosaurs. We'll talk after. Okay. <laughs> like Jason's gonna start sending me flashcards in the mail. <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like a threat. There's a brontosaurus. This is a plesiosaur. Come on. But yeah, they're, they're, like the the general interpretation of Nessie as a long neck. Oh, we're doing creature. this. We're doing we're doing this all the way to the to what the we're doing Nessie. All right, let's go. Let's well, no, because, well because of like because of um, you know, somebody the guy who reported the 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 now famous version of Nessie admitted he had just watched King Kong, right? And then he went out on the on the lake and like made up a story that he saw Nessie. And then that's how Nessie became what it is, because he saw a brontosaurus model that was existing in the water. Can we take you know a I mean? moment? Can we take a moment to just say that Jason, you gave Andrew a lot of shit earlier for explaining things to me, and if if you could go back in time, or if that version of you could like jump forward and here you go, we'll talk after. <laughs> no, because now you we're talking would, about uh, you McKenzie would not make fun of Andrew. photo of Loch Ness, and um, there's a lot to talk about there. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. All I'm saying it's fake. A T-Rex model, an Arnisotherium, and a pterodon, with a full-size model being made to grab Fay Ray. There was an Elasmosaurus model that attempted to snatch Anne in Kong's cave. That's the um, what many people think is a snake, correct? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is an elasmosaur. Uh, what's what's uh, fascinating? Uh, we, I think it was a few episodes ago. Maybe it wasn't even on. Uh, it might have been on a Patreon episode. Rest in peace, Arcade Patreon. Um, that we talked about pterodactyls and pteranodons differences. Um, and I want to say that it's a pteranodon in Kong because there's not actually any teeth on uh, the creature, and that's the difference. So pterodactyls have teeth. Pteranodons do not. Are you are um, you writing this down, Sophie? Oh, yeah, I'm adding it to my flashcard. <laughs> there will be a test after. Okay, I can't wait. There was uh, there was a uh, promotional image that incorrectly added teeth to the Pteranodon. Uh, I hope they were fired immediately and never got another job again. <laughs> no, of, no, of course not. They got the fucking Nobel Prize and then became an astronaut. We've, we know everyone. Everyone in this fucking, everyone in the 30s just uh, suddenly had a crazy career shift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they fucking took over American Airlines and became the CEO the next day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the scene with the elasmosaur was one of the film's most complex sequences. The water, the smoke, the miniature projection screen, and Kong's animation were all elements that were pretty much added into this one sequence. Uh, even elements such as dust clouds, right? Like, it's crazy the amount of 
effort you had to do for a scene that on its surface just kind of looks simple. There was a Styracosaurus and Arnesotherium who were at one point the ones who chased the sailors onto the log, but neither of them made the final film. The Styracosaur model actually did make it into the sequel, Son of Kong. John Sarasoli carved wooden versions of all of the creatures so that they could align up the shots without damaging the models because of how fucking hot everything was. Uh, Sarasoli actually carved the skulls for the Kong armatures as well, um, he would also uh, make wooden version of various crew members uh, for any sequence requiring it. Um, they actually had a portable darkroom on set to actually ensure the shots were lined up properly too. Like it's crazy. Um, the um, you know the the wooden models that Sarasoli did were actually used for all the human stuff. All the human models are actually these wooden models made by Sarasoli, which is kind of cool. That was very cool. The live action footage was filmed over an eight-month period. The jungle sequences being the first film as they needed to strike the set from the most dangerous game. Since these were done before Ruth Rose's final version, they were working off of the Creolman draft with much of the dialogue improvised. Oh, well, I mean, you'd have to improvise some of that dialogue because probably <laughs> yeah. it was... Uh... <laughs> probably. Um, <laughs> Ernest Schrodzak and Edward Linden went to New York in order to get some establishing shots, including the fighter planes that eventually took down Kong. They had to slow down the flight speed of the planes in order for them to be caught on film. The planes were from the Floyd Bennett Field. In order to get these planes, Shodzak had to give $100 to the officer's mess fund. And uh, he didn't let all of the officers get all of the profit. He actually paid each of the pilots $10 under the table. The commander of the formation died only a few weeks after he had participated in the film. Died 10 bucks richer, though. So, yeah, you know, whole $10. You know? Hey, man, in the 30s? During the during the depression, giving someone ten dollars. It's crazy to think that all those pilots, if they put all their money together, they would have more money than Ruth Rose made making this. Oh, that's so sad. Why'd you have to say that? I did not. I did not even put it into that perspective because yeah, they like literally got one fifteenth of the money. <laughs> Ruth Rose, that Ruth Rose made. fucking made. writing this entire movie. <laughs> wow! Wow! Oh, wow! God. Wow! Wow! They shot a few sequences atop the Empire State Building, and while they were there, they attained the architectural plans for the building so they could recreate it on the RKO lot. There are multiple claims that the crowd in the streets for Kong's opening were taken from City Lights, which opened in 1931. Which leads to a bit of confusion, because I, I read a whole bunch of times that the scenes from the crowds waiting for Kong... Um, were from that that movie. So, like, I don't know if maybe it was actually archive footage from City Lights that they used. Uh, I really don't know because City Lights opened in 1931. So I, I kind of did some research even into the where it opened and, like, when it opened in New York and everything like that. So they didn't film it at this this version. Maybe that's just a, a rumor that they used it from City Lights. I'm not really sure. That's a Charlie Chaplin film that's awesome. So if you haven't seen that, it's really good. In August of 1932, principal photography finally began. The wall sequences took 350 lights to illuminate. The huts for the village were taken from the film Bird of Paradise. 
they had to use tractors in order to actually pull open the gates. For the native speak used in this sequence, Ruth Rose had to provide a translation to the production code. I don't know how you translate something that you clearly made up. Right. But, <laughs> um, oh, God. Because, uh, yeah, because this was not, no natives actually spoke this way. Just letting you know, it's not, it's not a thing. <laughs> this is a, not a real language. This is not a real language, but, you know, I guess the production code actually knew what they were saying. I mean, is this, this sort of like, you know, when they hire some dude to make up Dothraki or Klingon <laughs> for fucking yeah. Star Trek, you know what I mean? Or <laughs> Game of Thrones. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, Fay Ray was in the midst of a very abusive relationship during the time of this filming. Also, her filming of this was an abusive relationship. Like, her relationship with this film was abusive. After she married her husband, uh, Robert Griskin, who they had a loving relationship to until he had a debilitating stroke and then died. It's very sad. Faye Ray like, does have a, 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 a air of tragedy to it. Robert Armstrong had difficulty because they actually changed his character drastically throughout the many drafts, and eventually he was like, I don't know who the fuck this character is. I'm just going to play Marion C. Cooper, basically. <laughs> which is a great move, which is a brilliant move. Yeah, honestly. which is a brilliant move, which is a brilliant move. Uh, and it works so well. In between filming, the actors would sometimes go months between scenes, and they were only paid for what they filmed. So this resulted in Bruce Cabot's weight shifting in scenes because he was just doing other movies that it required him to look in different ways and actually resulted in Faye Ray's status as a scream queen as she filmed Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum during this break. These two films, along with Kong, were all released around the same time frame, and that led to her becoming the scream queen we know her as today. It was all just because the way that, you know, they, they paid workers back then uh, especially actors there was no actors guild right so they only got paid for what they filmed so they could film like one scene with her in like march and then not film anything else until like may they could just have like months breaks and they have to make money so they have to take other work which is fascinating oh bruce cabot was a notorious drunkard and he was watched slapped by ernest p shodzak because he was super drunk Shodzak always regretted losing his cool on him, but uh, Cabot always says that it uh, it made him uh, not fuck around so much. So you shouldn't be hitting actors. You shouldn't be showing up to work drunk. Yeah, you shouldn't be yelling at them on set either, Tom Cruise. <laughs> uh, you know, if only they had a COVID robot, you know, yeah. everything would be fine. Uh, if they had a breathalyzer robot, no one would get done in this movie. Uh, <laughs> a every, breathalyzer robot? Everyone would go home. Willis O'Brien would be in constant fear hiding from that fucking robot. <laughs> All right. Shotzak's final scene was the one where he filmed the soliloquy about beauty killing the beast, but this version was actually filmed from atop the Empire State Building. When Cooper did his final scene, it was the exact same speech, but from the ground. Shodzak, after filming, he just left. Left to go to Syria to shoot more sequences for a movie that would just never be finished. So, like, the, that's the thing about Shodzak. He just never stuck around. He did not stay to edit. He did not stay to do any of this. He did not stay to do any of the post-production or anything like that. He just like, bam, my part of this is done. I'm going to go do something super dangerous that's going to get me killed. Bye. <laughs> 
like it's crazy when they did the the scene with the stegosaurus the men were actually walking on a treadmill so there's like walking on a treadmill while something was being rear projected in front of them and like i said this is like one of those scenes that before they had that upgraded and better rear projection process would have looked terrible like it's one it's one of those things where it's like this scene would not have worked if you didn't have that thing that just got invented. Right, <laughs> It's yeah. insane. It's insane. With the live action finished, Cooper would bring in actors for scenes utilizing special effects. During this process was the sequence in which Fay Ray had to spend 22 hours straight sitting in a tree reacting to the T-Rex and Kong fight. Yeah, not great. Not great. 20 That's a lot of hours. hours. That's a... That makes my butt hurt just thinking about it. <laughs> 22 hours. Fuck. Watching watching that fight. I mean, I'm sure nerds do that, has meant 22 hours doing that, but like... But they were on their couch at home and they could like go to the bathroom. The tree was intended to actually fall in one of these takes, but it actually cuts away in the final film because the tree prop would not fall. She was also required to do eight hours straight of screaming for Cooper. To get the sounds of her screams that they wanted. She apparently had difficulty speaking for weeks afterwards. Even with all of these difficulties, Fay Ray and Cooper were friends for years afterwards. Well, that's because it wasn't permissible for her to say anything bad about a man in public. Well, apparently, like, so one of the stories is, you know, um, you know, Cooper showed up at the, Bra- I think it was the Brown Derby, which is like that very famous place to meet uh, the the woman he was he would eventually marry, and he was kind of bragging that he was like, oh man, I made Fay Ray do crazy hours this week, and like uh, his future wife was like, uh, no, you fucking never do that shit again. You go and apologize and treat her well, and never do that again. So uh, good for he her. Didn't, yeah, he she uh, she really kind of shaped him up. It's worth noting too, like if you watch that scene with the T-Rex, that is not does not look like a, even a remotely comfortable tree to sit in for no. a hour, let no. alone 22 of them. No. And uh Dorothy Jordan was the uh, actress who mm. uh, would eventually marry Cooper and was just like, "Fuck you. Don't don't treat Fay Ray so terribly." So, good good on you, Dorothy Jordan. Um so she, you know, it was crazy because, you know, they were still using Faye Ray's scream in movies for ages after this. In literally in Son of Kong, the the lead the lead at one point screams and they just subbed in Faye Ray's scream and she's not in that movie. So it's like it's one of those things where it kind of became like a stock sound effect for a while. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, I mean, some people for some reason take the Scream Queen um, title very literally where that's not what's impressive about her performance, right? Same thing with, like, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. It's not her screaming that's impressive. It's everything around it. You know what I mean? And how Oh, she right. Yeah, no, I was just saying that it was, like, a very – it was still used uh, afterward. Yeah, yeah, because, because they think there's something special about the scream, you know, and sort of also, like, the screaming about her – you know, not that she's not great, but it's just like, you know, her scream, there's no reason to have her do it for eight hours, right? Like, you don't no. need the perfect scream. You no. just need a good, a great performance, you know? Yeah, which he got. <laughs> right. Yeah. It didn't take eight hours of straight fucking screaming to accomplish, you know? That's all. Yeah, exactly. Um, when they actually did do the animation of the T-Rex and Kong fight, Um, It was actually based upon boxing moves with, again, I want to I want to reference this 
as being like, this is in King Kong. So again, when Godzilla versus Kong comes out, it so it was, yeah, it was King Kong versus Godzilla in 1962. There's all these people being like, oh, they're, they're just using wrestling moves. Oh, it's, geez, guys, what are they doing? They're using wrestling moves. And it's like, guys, like the original movie is literally based on boxing moves. Chill the fuck out. Anyways, I clearly I clearly have a bias towards Godzilla movies, but, uh, you know, I'm going to stay here. Um, so <laughs> when Fei Ray was in the grasp of the, the Kong puppet, so when she was in the then the actual articulated giant hand that was basically a giant crane. The crane would literally lift far above the studio ground. And then the Kong, like, as she moved to do a performance, the Kong hand would slowly start to, like, let go. So she would just stay in place as long as she could. And then it would eventually be like, guys, we have to go down. We have to go down. The This this puppet is going to let me go and I'm going to fall to my death. So her fear was like so real in that moment because she's literally hanging on for dear life at this giant puppet. Sophie, what do you, how do you feel about that? Um, sad and stressed <laughs> out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. man. It's I, fucking I mean, scary. I mean, literally the premise of King Kong is you take this actress and you put her life in mortal danger. And that's literally what's happening. Yeah, I was going to say, so what do you do to your actress? You put her in mortal danger. <laughs> yeah. And then you blame her for the fucking. The and what do you do to your writer? Does. You pay her jack shit. Hey man, this is uh, some unfortunate realities of this time, right? Like I don't want to sugar sugarcoat it. Um, the zoom in on, on Fay Ray screaming was actually the, one of the first examples of an optical zoom ever in film. Oh, wow. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy, it's right? Crazy. Like, it's one of those weird things that you don't even realize uh, is one of the firsts. But, hey, you know, Kong invented that, too. Um, the sequence in New York of Kong dropping the woman uh, who was, like, a fake Anne, that was actually filmed twice. Uh, one with the actress on the phone and another in the final film where she was sleeping. And I wouldn't have been surprised to find out that they actually dropped her. <laughs> Considering no. everything else we learned about this. <laughs> no, of course not. They didn't actually murder a woman. <laughs> For the water scenes, they used stunt doubles. They filmed the animation sequences in order that they were needed for live action scenes. Anything that had to be rear projected was completed first with the use of miniature projection done near the end of the shoot. This was actually done before the era of storyboards but they basically still had storyboards because somebody did extensive technical drawings and continuity sketches, which are what storyboards are, but this is technically before storyboards. So just good to note. Um, yeah. the, the sketches would actually be followed to the letter, and they actually included things like lighting instructions. So This is a storyboard. I know it's a storyboard, but it's technically before storyboard. So if I called it a storyboard, someone would be like, well, actually. And I'd be like, I know, but it's technically a storyboard. W.G. White would, con would construct wooden frameworks, and he would also drill holes that would be used to anchor the puppets on miniature sets. These sets were then detailed by Orville Goldner, with miniature clay rock and trees made using a wooden frame, clay, toilet paper, and then being shellacked. They used thin pieces of copper for the leaves, and they even added some real plants. This was a mistake, as occasionally these plants would naturally bloom, which would completely ruin the continuity and completely ruin the shot. The buildings and the vehicles were actually made completely of metal, wood, and plaster. <laughs> In order to kind of give the jungles more depth, they used forced perspective and glass paintings. 
for their mats in this case and what they used and how they created these. They based all of this off of the work of famous artist Gustave Doré. It reportedly took them seven weeks to master the pterodon scene. Seven weeks. That's so long. That's almost as long as Fayre sat in that tree. <laughs> I, I almost wonder when they when they say the pteranodon sequence if they're also referring to the earlier like elasmosaur sequence like i wonder mm. if they're if they're roping both of those in because to me it would seem like the elasmosaur would take longer than the pteranodon but i like i don't well, know maybe because pterodon's flying like you have to give that perspective because right. pterodon's like swooping in um which is an amazing sequence i I'm always enthralled by that sequence of it coming down, trying to snatch her, and her fighting, and then the fight happens with Kong. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe just the effects are harder to, and they look, it looks amazing. So maybe just to perfect those effects is harder, maybe. Right. The last right. You can actually see the uh, venture in the background too. Like you can actually see the yeah. boat on the the map painting, which I thought was like crazy, Jeez. crazy. They filmed this at 24 frames a second, which meant they needed 24 different poses per second of film for the animation. This is eight frames more than they needed for The Lost World, which was a silent picture done at 16 frames a second. They would work through the entirety of a scene if they could, as, of course, the the lights would be, uh, lighting could be difficult at times. Um, Kong was actually filmed emerging from the jungle 16 times. However, they just ended up using the first take. Oh. <laughs> that right there, that's some fucking Kubrick shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Imagine just fucking Kong crying. Oh, my God. You're like, actually, oh. this was the right one. So, uh. <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> you bitch. Um. For the scene of Kong actually climbing the Empire State Building, it was actually animated by E.B. Gibson. It's hilarious because this is one of the most like iconic behind the scenes elements of Kong, which literally has this photo of Kong climbing up the Empire State Building. Yet there was all these reports of people who like pretended that they were like Kong in a ape suit at this sequence, which is just very weird because it's like literally one of the sequences that we have photographic evidence of them animating. It's just very weird. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, the birds are actually animated by Fred Reef, and they use this using wood and invisible wires. O'Brien and Cooper had very different expectations over how things should be done. And, uh, you know, typical, I guess typical of Cooper's um, reactions to any male conflict, it ended in shouting matches. I mean, he fucking had shouting matches with Shodzak and now he's having shouting matches with O'Brien. Apparently, like, Willis O'Brien really wanted to humanize Kong and, like, make him more of a character, while Cooper was like, no, he must be ferocious. We must make him super ferocious so that Aaron would cry when he dies. And you're like, alright. Like, alright. Weirdo. I mean, O'Brien was right. Yeah, I think O'Brien was right. But Cooper probably was yelling and O'Brien was probably just drinking straight out of a whiskey bottle. Like, I don't give a fuck. There was there were many cases where they said that basically O'Brien would just if he would just be like all right fuck this and go and go to a bar and drink. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. Um, in the end, both O'Brien and Cooper really have indelible effects on the character. Uh, as we mentioned last episode, Darlene O'Brien, the second wife of Willis O'Brien. Uh, oh, well, we'll talk about the first wife when we get to Son of Kong. Um, said she saw much of her 
husband in Kong, and Cooper has been quoted many times as declaring, I am Kong. You could just picture Cooper at, like, parties when someone's, like, uh, disagreeing with him, and he just, I am Kong! I am Kong! No, no, you're not okay. even joking. He used to, like, when he when he would encounter Fei Ray, he would start pounding his chest like <laughs> Kong. Oh, I'm not yeah. even kidding. Like, he would, he would and, like, Fei would be like, ah, ha, 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 so charming, Cooper. Oh, yes. But, like, you know, in reality, she's like, this fucking guy. This guy's the worst. The final miniature was actually the final scene of the film, which was that uh, element of Kong's body on the pavement. It's really kind of amazing because everyone ended at this scene. Shodzak technically shot a version of the scene. Cooper shot a version of the scene. And the very final miniature sequence was of this scene. So everyone's filming stopped at this point, which I just thought was very cool. When, King, when Kong's dead, the film's over, right? Like right. that. You know, I, I think that's the right decision. You know? Yeah, no, for sure. I just think it's, it's it, you know, mo- most of the time, like, things are not filmed in order, which is why I was just kind yeah, of really yeah, yeah. notable that the, everyone ended at the actual end, which I thought was just kind of cool. The infamous spider pit sequence was cut out during a studio screening as Cooper felt like it slowed down the film. The scene is in all likelihood destroyed. Yeah, they burned that too. They just took the film out and they burned it. You're not, you're not, that's not even a joke. <laughs> no, because that's what they used to do with deleted scenes. They like literally just burnt delete. Like it's just, they, like, that's what just happened like, oh. with the spider sequence, right, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just much. burn it. it. Just burn it. Yep, yep, pretty much. Contrary to popular belief, it is really unlikely that any of these models were used in 1957's The Black Scorpion. The props were actually property of RKO, and they would have been in extremely poor condition at this time. In 1957, these these would be terribly, um, you know, it, mm. they would be terrible at this point. Uh, Jim Danforth actually came across many of the original props whilst making Jack the Giant Slayer, and the props were completely unusable at that time. This is further backed up by the actual technical advancements evident in the Black Scorpion, such as the ball joint construction and polyester resins of, uh, of the scene. Black Scorpion was a very low-budget film, um, but it, it, you know, I don't think that Cooper was, was carrying around these old puppets. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, back up to the um, spider pit sequence since we did talk about it a little bit Um in the last episode, in the, in, the, in the previous episode. But, like, the spider pit sequence is such an awesome idea, which is essentially the log scene where people fall off of it and they fall into the hole, but, like, spiders come crawling out of the wall and start eating people, right? How could that slow the movie down? I don't understand how something like that could slow a movie down. It's literally spiders eating people. Giant spiders. It just kind of, you know, it just distracts, right? Distracts from the, like, from the, the flow. If you watch Kong, it doesn't lag too much. It's go bam, bam, no, bam. It's, and, it's, no. it, and it's like a, it is probably a better, better film because they cut it. I mean, I love that scene in, P, like, I love Peter Jackson's King Kong, but it's yeah. an ab, ab, of ungodly length. Well, yes, that's true. But you could have that sequence without you know, making the entire film six hours long, like Peter Jackson's right. film, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I I stated what I stated there because I don't believe this this uh, Spider-Pit sequence ever saw the light of day in any film uh, mm. 
preview. There are people who who say that uh, say that there was. I mean, there's a very famous quote by Ray Bradbury, who is just like, "I was there, I saw it." And but the, what, how he describes it is a very short sequence. So you know, he he I think he describes it as like a few seconds at most, which which to me might mean that hey, maybe he did see a piece of it that was not properly cut out of the film when they did the first like version. I just it wouldn't have been Perhaps. the full. It would not have been the full Spider Pit sequence. So I, yep. I am, I am by no means calling uh, Ray Bradbury a liar because that man <laughs> is like such a. Are you calling Ray Bradbury a fucking liar? Is no, that what you're doing no, right? I love Ray Bradbury. He's so <laughs> nice. He seems like he seems like such a nice man. But it, it's like everything that's connected to King Kong. Like there is conflicting information. Everything's shrouded in mystery, and and, and you know there's different perspectives of what actually happened and people tell wildly different stories about the same thing and um you know it's just part of the mystique of king kong i think yeah point. yeah no i i completely agree and uh you know i i really don't i i think those uh the the spider pit models uh died with kong like i don't think there was everything burned in the fire pit yeah, I don't. I don't know. There were actually some some uh, statements that they appeared in other, like in the backgrounds of other films of that time period. But I never really saw more, much more than like an anecdotal uh, reference to the yep. and the films that they supposedly appeared in are quite difficult to track down nowadays. So, tis what it is. Um, the train sequence was actually added after the film was fully completed. Uh, that was because it came in at 13 reels, which was considered bad luck. Um, but the final film contains only 11 reels because, you know, they, they edited down a whole bunch of things and cut out a whole bunch of sequences that Cooper felt was unnecessary. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, this scene is so iconic that it was really kind of needed. Um, I kind of love it. And apparently the the motivation for it was just Co- when Cooper lived in New York, he hated the L train because it kept him up at night. So he just wanted Kong to destroy it. He's like, Kong, destroy this fucking, destroy this stupid train. I hate this train. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. Uh, I So I hear that apparently if you pause the movie at the right point, you can actually see an advertisement for, I believe it's Chang in uh, in this this model train. Um, I've never been able to see it, and I was actually looking for it last time I watched the film, and I wasn't able to see it. But apparently it's there. If you want to look, they actually, in order to um, add depth to that final sequence, they actually layered the background with different sized miniature planes to add the illusion of depth. They actually also made like a huge wooden ramp that they they brought the camera down and up in order to kind of like simulate this idea of the like the planes to in order to get the perspective of the planes. They built a huge ramp for the camera to kind of go down and kind of ramp up. And again, like, cameras are so heavy. Cameras were so heavy and huge. Like, it's huge cameras, right? Like, it's crazy. Real crazy. For Kong actually falling to his death, they used a very high shutter speed. And that high shutter speed nearly destroyed the camera on their first attempt. <laughs> Which is just insane. Um, the film was actually edited by... Ted Chessman. I know it looks like Ted Cheeseman. I heard it on many commentaries, many documentaries. Ted Chessman, unfortunately. Uh, And they actually cut 25 minutes out of the film, which made sure that it ended 
at 100 minutes. We all know the real cheese man is uh, Bruce Cabot. um what 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 is kind of funny um if you watch the film nowadays you'll be like wait it's isn't it 104 well that's because there's four minutes of um you know overture before the yeah there's that overture that you know um which when i watched in my um children watch were like is this a movie like what is going on because it's like just the overture shot and I was like, no, that's that's what happened in the in the before times. The sound effects were actually achieved by Murray Spivak over a nine-month period. Due to the mics at the time, they would have to come up with creative solutions in order to make sure they didn't actually blow out the mics, which, again, is just like it's another element of impressiveness to this film because um, they had to do things like you only using like half half of the gunpowder bullet in order to do some of the rifle shots and i think that's just crazy interesting that um they had to come up with even creativeness in this sound effect department um you know every single piece of kong has some type of iconic element that really took a lot of time to kind of uh, achieve and uh murray spivak is really important to this Kong's roar was actually achieved by recording lion and tiger roars, playing them backwards at a slower speed. Classic. It's like a classic technique used nowadays, but again, that must have been quite a quite a development at the time to kind of come up with that. Can you imagine? Like, their sound was relatively new, let alone the right. sound of beasts that didn't exist. Crazy. Yeah, it's craziness. Um, the dinosaurs mostly just hissed and growled because it was actually believed by ta- paleontologists of the time that's all they could do for the T-Rex. They they used the backwards panther growl and bird squawks were used for the Pteranodon. So it's, uh, you know, pretty interesting, pretty interesting. Um, these roars were all recorded at the Zelig Zoo in Los Angeles. So, um, you know, if you're in L.A., Destroy the zoo because zoos are bad. <laughs> but don't burn it because that's what this movie would do and the animals shouldn't suffer. Yeah, the animals shouldn't be burned. <laughs> no, 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 no. Free the animals. Free all the animals. Let them loose. Let them destroy L.A. Yeah. You don't need L.A. It's better for us. It's better that way. King Kong's grunts were actually Spivik's own grunts. Kong's footsteps were actually achieved using plungers wrapped in foam and stomped across gravel. Wow. Now, again, like when you, again, you really have to put all this in perspective of how early sound effects were, right? And you hear about these, uh, you know, if you, if you look into the history of, like, say, Star Wars, that was 40 years, over 40, it was about 44 years after this movie, and they still had difficulty with coming up with all these fictional sound effects and had to come up with creative solutions. Spivak had to do it, and he would have no idea if it would work at first, right? Like, he had to go completely off the top of his head and completely invent it all. Yeah, I mean, I am obsessed with sound design guys because they have the craziest job in the world. They're like, how can I make a uh, sound of a bird flying? Well, let me grab a hockey stick, wrap it in foam, and smack my you know stepmother in the head with it and record it. And that's how the sound comes. It's like fucking crazy. It's crazy. Their job is insane. 
Yeah, it is insane. And I wasn't trying to uh, kind of like uh, lower the uh, accomplishments of Ben Burt for that original Star Wars stuff. Like that's a, it's a, it's amazing. I'm just I'm just trying to point out like how new this uh, whole technique was. For sure. Yeah. Um, the iconic beating of Kong's chest was actually achieved by Spivak holding up a microphone to the back and have his assistant Walter Elliott be smacked in his chest with a drumstick. See that? There you go. Exactly. Fucking crazy. It's amazing. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Most people just say assistant, but I had to make sure I found the name because, man, his uh, his chest was very important to the sounds of history. Yeah. I mean, he has every right to say I am Kong um, the way fucking Cooper yelled it at strangers on the fucking the train at night after a long night of drinking. <laughs> you know, you fucking guys at the L train, I am Kong. I'll destroy <laughs> that train. Yeah. I'm trying to sleep. I'll destroy it. Right. Max Steiner. Hey, Sophie, bringing you back in. Old Steiny. Old Steiny. That's, that's, <laughs> is that what his friends called him? Old Steiny. Old Steiny to his friends. <laughs> He actually composed his music in only eight weeks and performed it with a 46-piece orchestra. So it took him barely more time to compose the entire thing than it did to do the pterodon scene, which is crazy. And both of those were shorter than the amount of time that Faye Ray spent in that tree. Exactly. Exactly. Max Steiner actually composed all of it under the tree while looking up at Feyre. <laughs> it was actually one of the first uses of light motifs, which is what we, we talked about uh, when we did our first King Kong thing. And it was actually paid for by Cooper himself when RKO refused to pay for the music. They originally wanted Steiner to borrow music from other films due to the time concerns about the film and budget. To which Steiner literally had to respond to them being like, there isn't any music to borrow. Like, there's no other movie like this has been filmed. What am I supposed to borrow? Like, We've had sound in film for a week and a half, okay? <laughs> where do you want me to borrow this music from? Like, where do you want this from? Like, what am I supposed to do here? And this is one of the best scores of all time, right? So, like, I, it's crazy to think that they... That was the first thing they wanted to cut was the music for this film. Exactly, exactly. Um, eventually, Cooper uh, did get reimbursed, and uh, we got one of the most iconic scores. Steiner actually chose to not have any music until until they reached Skull Island. That's like a cool thing to notice when you rewatch the movie is that there's yeah, not just... any any score i think it's i like think they literally hit the fog bank and then the score begins and i think it's just kind of magical like it's really when it's one of those things yes. where you know some some of the things where people are like oh you, you watch a movie you can notice this like things about like the the varying varying heights of kong and all this stuff but i think what's really great to rewatch it is to notice things like the score and when it is actually implemented as it really kind of teaches you a lot about uh scoring for music it, it adds to like this ominous element to reaching Skull Island, right? Yeah, where you're yeah. sort of, um, w you know, much like when like Wizard of Oz, when you open the door and there's color. You know what I mean? It's um, it changes the, the entire feel once you reach this like mystical place. It's really cool. Yeah, it's it's really it's quite amazing. There was actually over seventy minutes of original score, 
and the music would actually react to actions on the screen. Um, so the best example of this is watching Lo- Noble Johnson go down the stairs uh, when he's first introduced, and every time he steps, a music kind of a music cue kind of hits, and that's probably the easiest way to, to kind of notice this. Uh, what's great is that Steiner and Spivak worked in close conjunction with each other. Uh, in order to make sure that they wouldn't be stepping on each other's like toes, so Spivak didn't want his, um, you know, his sound effects to conflict with the music and vice versa. So they found uh, that working together was really helpful. In um, is a in a very unsurprising uh, bit of fact, they would drink with each other <laughs> long mm. into the night, which with scotch being their drink of choice. Apparently Steiner would, when he got really drunk, would be really um, self-conscious about his score and like want to quit the film always. And Spivak would be like, "What? This thing is like really good. <laughs> like, what are you talking about?" And he was and right. I, I don't, yeah. And I, I'm like, man, that's like me after finishing every episode of Milkshakes and Mimosas. I'm just like, I'm gonna quit, guys. I'm done. I'm quitting this podcast. And then, <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm the Spivak. Like, no, dude, put it out. Come on. Well, no, Valeska's the Spivak. Yeah, I'm that's sorry, true. She's the, that's true. Fair enough. Um, before release kong went through its final name change to become king kong combining the idea from edgar wallace of king ape with cooper's original kong title there is also again a little bit of conflicting reports as to the moniker of king because of course we have uh, there, there's a letter from cooper to douglas burden who we learned about in the king of komodo um his book uh, has, um, you know, a, 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 it's called The King of Komodo, and it was a very big influence to Cooper uh, in making the film. And Cooper says that this is the idea for King when he writes it in his letters. And I believe it's dated 1952, so this is quite a bit after Kong was made. Uh, also, there are elements and people who claim that it was David O. Selznick who came up with the King moniker. Who knows? Who knows? Kong became King Kong, and we're not really sure how. But we're all better for it. And Okay, here's another thing that's crazy. Here's another thing that's fucking insane. We're almost done, guys. I swear to God. You're, you're like, what? How how can things be almost, like, how can we be introducing new There's insane things? There's probably 30 more minutes of, of us talking about King Kong coming up, so hang on. The scenes that were used for publicity, the behind-the-scenes photos, were actually taken by Felix Shodzak, and it was one of the first uses of small negative camera for publicity photos, which is just kind of crazy. And by that, I mean like normal, how we would how we would think of when you take a photo, right? Like that is a small negative camera. It, well, okay, technically, depends on who I'm talking about. Some people just think about digital cameras, right? So, I mean, it's... Uh, if you buy a disposable camera, it's small negative do they still sell those? Do they still sell disposable sure cameras? Yeah, sure they yeah, do. They do. <laughs> How old am I? Where are we? What year is it? <laughs> um, the film was screened for exhibitors, and it was such a hit with the studio heads approved a massive marketing campaign. There was actually a 30-minute radio program advertising the film. I've searched for this, but I, I can't find any of it archived. Um Old radio is woof. No one was really, no one was really holding on to old radio. You like the best you. I don't even know how you would even. You someone would have to find an old tape, and I'm sure it was just copied over or something. You know, it's one of the things that doesn't really exist anymore. 
This campaign, though, did include the novelization, which was actually written by Delos W. Lovelace, who was a journalist for the Minneapolis Daily News. Who knows? An abridged version of this was actually printed up in Mystery Magazine, and there was a London Daily Herald retelling by Kingsley Long. It ran from April 21st to June 1st, 1933. This version, this Daily Herald version, included the term Skull Island, which was absent in most other retellings and is actually called Skull Mountain Island in the movie. There is another short version of King Kong that was actually done in a 1933 issue of Cinema Weekly. So there are a whole bunch. There are one, two, three, four different versions of a novel or a retelling uh, of King Kong, all written in 1933. And uh, you can actually track down all of them. All of them still exist in, in some form. So Yeah, yeah, and they're all worth checking out, I would say. Yeah, you know? if if for nothing else, then just to figure out how how much they changed it, right? Right. Uh, they they are what they choose to include is very fascinating because like that mystery magazine version didn't actually include any dinosaurs. Listen, we are roughly three hours into talking about making a film that's an hour long, essentially, right? So, so if you've made it this far take the time and track down the other versions, you know? Yeah. The only one that I wasn't able to track down myself was actually this short version of King Kong done in the Cinema Weekly 1933 issue. And it wasn't because I didn't buy the book. I bought the book, and then they told me they didn't actually have it, and they lost the book. Mm-mm. I had that – I had that. I actually lost three books <laughs> that I bought <laughs> that never arrived <laughs> during the course of this. And eventually we got their hands on them uh, because Jason kind of tracked them down. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of an issue. But I did get reimbursed from all of them, so it's not and no hard feelings. Uh, just you know, COVID shipping. Um, despite being released during the darkest days of the depression, the film set an all-time attendance record for an indoor attraction. Opening in New York City on March second, nineteen thirty-three, it played at two theaters directly across from each other. Radio City Music Hall, and the RKO Roxy, which had a th- which had a pre-show titled Jungle Rhythms to coincide with the opening, and it grossed $89,391 in the first four days alone. And let me tell you, that is a lot when the Great Depression is happening. Yeah. It, it premiered at Groman's Chinese Theater on March 23rd, and there was a young Ray Harryhausen in the theater for that screening, and it changed his life forever. Obviously, right? So um, I do want to also say, like, in terms of, um, in terms of, like, the box office, right, there was some, um, there was definitely some signs that, films like this adventure jungle films were going to break out right um yeah you know we'll talk a little bit more about that as we sort of talk about um the pre-show but yeah i just wanted to prime us for that like this didn't come from nowhere right i kind of know what you're gonna say but anyways um so uh 
when it premiered at, at Grauman's, uh, the Chinese theater, they actually brought out the big head. So I guess it, it did exist, and it was probably burnt after that. <laughs> it attended the giant opening along with the cast. Uh, this performance had a pre-show called Dance of the Sacred Ape. Oh. Dance of the Sacred Ape featured 50 black actresses and was more than likely incredibly racist. There I mean, also... with a name like that, I can't imagine it was oh, not. I, can, I cannot. <laughs> I, I, you know what? It's probably a very, I, you know, I just poured apparently, apparently uh, just because I don't want to be sued. Um, I also saw photos of an apparent promotion, which is one, this is one of the worst things I've seen in relation to this. It was like in a collage of other Kong photos and there was two black males that were wearing a sign that said, I just arrived from the darkest Africa to see King Kong. Ooh. It's really bad. No, it's thank really, you. It's real bad. It's one of the worst uh, marketing things I don't know I maybe I've ever seen. Well, actually, maybe and, the worst know, is Nganji, which is um, where essentially was also owned by RKO. Right. Well, yeah. So they they did when they when they when they did do uh, the first draft of King Kong. Inagi definitely came up, and I know that David O. Selznick had to have somebody read the script just to make sure they weren't like copying it or doing anything yeah. like that. Um, and apparently, David O. Selznick was like, I had never actually seen the film. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about it? In well, I, right I, I, I think, um, well, here's the thing, right? It, it was like, actually mentioned in Creelman's draft, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And it, it has, so Nganji, um, if you don't know what it is, is a film that pretends to be a documentary film. So it, it's not actually a documentary film. And that's the reason why we probably don't talk about it. Because when it was in the theaters, it was selling like hotcakes. People were dying to see it, and it's incredibly racist, right? Um, it has racist portrayals of black women. Um, um, you know, and eventually it actually got canceled by the studio, not because it wasn't profitable, but because the Hayes, um, Hayes office looked into it and determined and discovered there was no documentary. It was just dressing black people up like apes, essentially. Um, yeah. And... But because it was so popular when it was allowed to be in the theater, RKO basically was like, well, King Kong can probably make money as well. Uh, most other studios were going after gangster films at the time, right? So they were essentially like, okay, there's an appetite for this type of jungle film. Um, Where so I did think you that, find that? Um, the Girl in the Harry Paw. Oh, okay. The Girl in the Harry Paw does that. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. That's good to know. So that 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 is a thing that um, is discussed in that in that book, um, and we're going to talk about something else from that book in a, in a few minutes as well. But um, that is um, that is something that's you know I, I mean again with King Kong, I think you have to be extremely careful when you don't have multiple sources corroborating the information because you have so many different people telling different stories, but that seems to track for me, right? Like, Oh, I, I, you know, like you said, when we were talking, discussing the rights of King Kong, Cooper, we know that I, Cooper did not 
this was not Cooper's inspiration, but it could have right. easily been an inspiration for getting the film greenlit. Exactly, right? exactly, right. right? And and you know, um, studios don't give a shit about anything except making money, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. they're not going to look at Ganji and be like, "Well, yeah, that was obviously atrociously amoral and um, incredibly racist." They're going to think, "Let's make another jungle picture," and yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> let's uh, rake in the bucks. That's like. That's that's how it goes in the business. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say it's probably. I just don't think they cared whether Ngenju was racist or not. You know, well, I don't. I don't think anyone cared about anything about this film being anything of this film being racist, right? Like, yeah. man, oh my god. Um, and yeah, there's a in, in the Creelman draft. They they have a moment where they like do something impressive, and they're like, ah. Oh, those fools who think Ganji was real, they're never going to believe this. This is way more impressive. And yeah. it's just like a weird, it's like a weird reference to jungle pictures. Cause, so you know that at some point uh, those jungle pictures were, uh, were referenced. Yeah, and, and you know, I don't, I personally, and there is racism in King Kong, I do not believe King Kong is personally, right? I do not believe it is... Um, Analogous. It, yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't believe it's analogous to um, racially motivated sentiments, personally. However, because of Nganji, any jungle picture is tainted with the fact that, uh, and some racial stereotypes, obviously, in this film, right? Yeah, this um, film is racist. Natives. This film is definitely racist. It's just trying to talk about the ways it's racist, I guess. Right, the, exactly. Discussion exactly. But, right. Um, yeah, so there's... It's a very interesting uh, discussion to be had, uh, and I think uh, if you wa- again, if you want to really read some interesting uh, dissection on that, I definitely would recommend you read uh, Horror Noir. Uh, there's a whole chapter. Uh, yeah, and I think the best uh, the best place to go if you want to read up more on jungle films and their harmful uh, depictions of of African Americans, I would suggest you. Uh, track down horror noir blacks in american horror films from the 1890s to present by by robin r means coleman and the second chapter of that book details all of this in uh in detail and i would definitely recommend um you read a persons of color uh about this and not more white people so (laughs) yeah and i would recommend you read that book period it's fucking amazing 100 percent. and watch the corresponding documentary if you have not already yeah of course of course right King Kong opened wide on April 10th and made $2 million in its initial release. This would be the first time that RKO would post a profit in its five-year history. RKO was not doing well. The only reason they survived was because of King Kong. This is especially notable when you look at what the fucking tickets were at the time. Tickets were 10 cents. 10 cents to go see a movie. Holy and it cow. Made, two million? Two million dollars. It's pretty impressive. The what what is what I kind of remember, uh, you know, knowing ten cents makes it really funny when you watch King Kong and you find out that Denim was charging people ten dollars to see King Kong at the end of the movie. Denim was just fucking robbing these people blind. Ten cents, they could go fucking see a movie, and Denim was like, "Oh, you want to see this this fucking animal? I put in a put on a stage. <laughs> Ten dollars. Ten dollars. Oh, Denim, you piece of shit. Um, the only award that the film got 
was a special achievement award for Sidney Saunders and Fred Jackman, who had invented that new rear projection screen. Germany almost censored the film, but Goebbels approved it, saying this, It was a terrific struggle between Kong and the dinosaurs and the highly developed white race. It was retitled The Fable of King Kong, an American trick and sensation film, which Hitler saw many times. The only thing they edited out? Nothing about race, obviously. They edited out a scene of a train derailing because they didn't want the German people to lose faith in trains. And some close-up of Faye Ray's screaming because I guess they're like, oh, actresses, ah, fucking Nazis. Anyways, I thought that was good to good to mention. <laughs> you only, um, you know, just again, while we're having this discussion about, you know, how this film is viewed, um, you know. Can you imagine if, can you imagine if Creelman was still on board and got that <laughs> script, how much they really would have fucking loved that movie? God. They only saw the Creelman <laughs> I bet you Hitler was like, mm, but, but if you notice Kong Chase's size in the movie, he's not the same size. Mm, I love it. I love that Hitler. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, in the promotional film, it was a pterodactyl, but this is clearly a pteranodon. Did, did you notice his teeth? <laughs> did you not notice the teeth in that photo? Oh, my God. Fucking loser. Cry um, baby Hitler. Fuck, I hate Hitler. Wait, obviously. I hate Hitler. <laughs> hot take of the year. Hot take. From I, Andrew. I, <laughs> hot take. Well, on the internet, yeah, unfortunately, it is a hot take these days. <laughs> oh, um, boy. Hitler, oh boy. not a fan. <laughs> <It is>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When the film was re-released in 1952, it was credited with restarting the giant monster boom, which eventually led to Godzilla in 1954. Screenwriter James A. Krillman kills himself in 1941. Ernest Vromat Schrodzak died in 1979. Ruth Rose passed away the year before. Robert Armstrong and Marion C. Cooper died mere hours apart from each other in 1973. Faye Ray lived until 2004, and when she passed away, the lights on the Empire State Building were dimmed in her honor. At the end of her life, Faye told her daughter Victoria that she saw old friends calling to her from the afterlife, two of which were Marion C. Cooper and Monty Shodzak. And that is the making of King Kong. She saw a light at the end of the tunnel, and at the end was Marion C. Cooper going, I am Kong! <laughs> I am Kong! Um, Jason, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Um, um, I have a Twitter, you know, a bad attitude 86, where I tweet about stuff. Um, I have a couple podcasts, Moments of Madness, where both of these fine individuals have been on um, numerous times, um, where I talk about social issues through television. Um, I have a music podcast with my daughter called uh, Generation Intonation. And I'm on milkshakes and mimosas, baby. You know? Nice. nice. Sophie, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me in a couple different places. I review horror movies over at bloodygoodhorror.com, and I very recently reviewed Blackwater Abyss, if you want to read me talk about a different uh, monster movie. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Phillies Femme. That's Phillies, like the baseball team, and Femme, like the French lady. 
And you can check out my horror podcast that I have with my younger sister called 28 Days Later. Okay, sounds good. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you can always follow me on Twitter at, at WineMovieNerd or email us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com. Thank you and have a good day. Goodbye.